know, sometimes you read a passage like Alan just read for us this morning. Uh, again, our pastors, he'll, he'll be back, I believe, this week. Him and Charlotte have traveled over to see their, one of their many children over in, I believe they're in London. London now, yes. So um, this is a trip that had been postponed because of his, the, the health problem that he experienced. And so they've gone ahead and done that, and we praise God that he was able to, to take an opportunity to visit with his kids over there, his new grandbaby. Um, they're having a great time. I think there are some pictures on Facebook. He said if you friend him, you'll see all that good stuff. So uh, Nate Renz, our senior pastor, and he should be back here with us later this week. Um, so sometimes you read a passage, and honestly, you look at it, and it's like, well, what more is there to say? I mean, I think that, you know, sometimes when Jesus teaches parables, he, he'll, he'll, many times in the past, he'll, he'll give the parable, and then the folks who are listening will say, well, what did that all mean? What, what is the soil? What are these seeds? Here's a case, largely because we're kind of at the end of his ministry. He's about to go to the cross. Here's a case where he, he doesn't leave much to the imagination. He leaves a lot of people asking, wow, you know, what in the world is that all about, right? Um, in, in chapter 12 of Mark, we see Jesus addressing these leaders that had challenged his authority. Alan, Alan spoke last week on this notion from the past uh, verses in verses 27 through 33 of these chief priests. These were the leaders in Israel, the guys who led the temple. They had seen Jesus' work, and they said, hey, we don't, we don't believe that you have the authority that these people are ascribing to you. And so let's talk about who you are and where you came from and why you believe you have the the, what, what justifies you making these statements to us, right? And so Jesus, he talks to him, he kind of bears with him for a moment, and then he gives him a little challenge at the end. And then he rolls into chapter 12, verses, well, he rolls into, rolls into this parable where he really comes after him pretty hard, right? Um, as I was reading this parable, the, the, you know, and preparing the message, I, I asked myself, well, what is, the, what is the theme here? What is kind of the idea? And, and the first thing I thought about, well, it was, well, this is really a passage describing the failure of leaders. What happens when leaders fail? When they have been given a responsibility, they've been given a duty, they've been given a command, especially these religious leaders, they were given the law and how to exercise it, and they had failed in that responsibility. They were derelict, as you would say, in their responsibility of obeying, keeping, teaching, caring for those who were under the law. But then I said to myself, well, as I studied more, I was like, well, honestly, this is more than just about leadership failures and what happens, how God responds to leaders who fail. What Jesus is really talking about here is how God deals with us, all of us, when we fail. These principles we're going to go over, there's eight of them, these principles that we're going to go over deal with what God does and how he responds when his people fail. Trivia question or pop quiz. Who was the first person in the Bible to fail? Adam. Okay. Adam and Eve. We'll just put them together. The, the first couple, right? Those are the first individuals in the Bible to fail. The very first people ever created failed. So that kind of goes on to say that how many of us in here have ever failed? I see some hands not going up. Maybe either because you're not listening or because, because every single one of us has failed in something. You know, whether it was an inconsequential thing, like throwing a ball from third base to second base to get the lead runner and get a double play, 
and missing the second baseman, and then the ball going out into the field, and then getting the, both the lead runner and the guy who just hit the ball in scoring position. That's a failure. It hits home. We still won yesterday. But anyway, so that, that's a failure, but it's inconsequential, right? I mean, you, you lose a baseball game, there's 162 of them. So you lose one, who cares, right? I mean, you still got a big contract, you keep going. But there are some things in life that we fail in, marriages, responsibilities at work, responsibilities in the ministry, in ministry not caring for those who, in, who are in need, not caring for the, for the poor, not caring for, for, the, for, the, for the fatherless. There are some failures in our lives that are much more consequential. They have a greater impact. In the lives of these, these chief priests, these, these men who had authority and who ruled over these, the things of the temple, their failure was much more consequential than missing your second base, um, second baseman with a ball, right? Their failures echoed down to everyone who was under them. In the same sense, we talk about Adam and Eve. The failures of Adam and Eve echoed down to all of us today. You know, we are stained by the sin of those two people that were first created who failed in their responsibility of obeying God. And so God responds, and thankfully he responds. God says, okay, you failed, so let me give for you, God says, effectively, especially in this parable, let me give for you some insights as to how I'm going to now deal with your failure, right? So we're going to talk today about how God deals with our failures. Uh, again, back over in chapter 12 of verse 1 of, of, of Mark, I'm going to just start reading the passage again. It starts out by saying, and he began to speak to them in parables. I'm going to stop there, because there's our first principle. One thing that God does when we fail, one of the very first things he does, is he tries to teach us precepts, principles. He talks to us. That's the next slide. Thank you. Um, he speaks pre precepts to live by. God says, okay, you failed, so let me give you some, some principles and some, some ideas, some thoughts that you can live by. In this case, in giving these precepts, he uses what's known as a parable. A parable. It's a Greek word, historical Greek word, has a prefix para, and then the next, next part of the suffix is bole or bowl, and the idea is that para is, a, is to mean, it means close, close by. Uh, bole or bowl means ball, so you can think of a throwing something. You know, so, or casting something. So para, close, bowl, a ball. So the idea here is that God takes a principle and he, he, he aligns that principle or he casts that principle alongside what we may call an analogy story, right? Math students may have remembered in, in math study or geometry this idea of a, of a parabola. How many of you guys know what a parabola is? If you don't know what one is, it's on the screen, right? Push that play button. A par uh, parabola, there's a focus in the middle, there's a directrix at the bottom, and you have this line, this, this thing in the middle that we call a, par a, par a parabola, right? And that parabola, you can see that those two, you know, those kind of those, that little graph um, is, is, is a line that never will intersect at any point, and it is always equidistant from the focus and the directrix, right? That's kind of how it how it's structured. You know, and, and putting this together, I was thinking, well, this is a lot like um, how we understand the parables being taught in the Bible. And, and that, click forward. You can look at this like, oh, we lost it. 
Look at this, like, th th these are the Pharisees, right? They're the guys who are along the directrix. They're walking. They're walking along. Jesus gives the parable the story. He tells the story. The parabola, the parable, parable is the story. And he's driving them to that precept, that focus. At some point, they get very close as a line, on that line, to the focus. The problem is, they never really get the point. And someone may ask, well, why, did, why would Jesus teach something or teach a principle, and then the people that are listen, listening to it won't necessarily get the point? They won't get to that point. Look over in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, the disciples asked the very same question. They said, Jesus, why are you talking in parables? You want them to understand the precept. You're giving them a precept to live by. Um, why can't just, you just be plain about it? You know, They failed, obviously. These people have failed. You're given this precept. Why are you using a parable? Uh, chapter 4 of Mark, we see some enlightenment here. Verses, verses 10 through 12. Let's read that together. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. Someone might say, it says there in the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, it says that Jesus began to speak to them in parables. If you were a person that was around when Jesus made the statement in the prior passage in chapter 4, you would think, wow, he's teaching in a parable here because he knows they're not going to get it. They're not going to understand, which kind of explains why he gets so explicit later on. The fact that Jesus uses this form of teaching confirms that the judgment of these men had already fallen. What's fascinating is that although they got the picture underlying the lesson we see later on, upon recognizing what he'd said, they sought to destroy him. They get close to the precept. They understand the precept. But their response in understanding the precept wasn't to worship him as God. Their response was to destroy him. They see and perceive, they hear and understand uh, yet the evil which so deeply invaded their hearts um, made restoration so improbable for them. Uh, see, when God gives us, when we fail and God gives us a principle that we should live by, this is our first opportunity to get back on track, right? God says, okay, you've, you've messed up. He told Adam and Eve, all right, guys, you've messed up. Did he destroy them? Did he start from scratch? Did he, did he uh, make them suffer? Did he, did he lash them many times? No, he didn't. He said to them, okay, you failed. Here are the consequences for your failure. Here's the reason I'm laying forth these consequences. And here is how you must proceed now going forward. Right? So God gives these precepts. And this is where it starts. And hopefully we respond to the precepts. Because if we don't, then it takes, we take the next step. And he takes the next step in his teaching of us. It goes to the next point. Not only does he give us precepts to live by when we fail, but he also establishes structures through which we can exercise his plan. He establishes structures through which we can exercise his plan. Look back over in Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 1. It says that he began to speak to, the, to them in parables, giving them his precept. 
a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. So what, what is this, this, this man we, we know as God? He's referring to the master God. He's saying that this God, this owner of this vineyard, what does he do next? What does he do in, in this parable? Well, he's building structures. He's putting forth this these, these walls, he puts out, he, puts out a, he makes a, a, a wine press. A wine press was structured like this. There was an upper chamber that was lined with stones, and there was a lower chamber that was lined with stones, and then there was a pipe that went from the lower chamber to the, from the upper chamber to the lower chamber. And then what do you think happened in that upper chamber with the grapes? You guys ever seen that I Love Lucy episode? Where they were, they were um, you guys don't even know what I'm talking about. And I'm not that old either, but I've seen the episode. But you've seen the episode, you've seen where people, you know, they, they, they crush the grapes with their feet. You hope they washed them, their feet, but they're crushing the grapes with their feet. And as they crush the grapes with their feet, the, the, the juices flow down into the lower chamber, and now they got juice that they can ferment and make wine with. So that's the structure that this, this, this homeowner, this, this landowner had created for them. He put a hedge around it, this fence around it. What do you, what do you think the fence was for? Well, the fence was to protect them from, you know, stuff coming in, like animals and and maybe foxes and stuff like that from trying to take the food or, or other animals in, in, the, in the farm. And then he also put a big watchtower. And the watchtower was obviously for someone to stand guard and look to see if there were any villains or bad people coming or animals coming that might try to ravish the area. And so God put for well, this master, he put together all these structures. He said, hey, again, going back to when we talk about failure, God's saying, hey, you've messed up. So here's an opportunity for you to get better. I'm going to give you these, I'm going to teach you these principles, but I'm also going to give you some structures by which you can live. What do you think are some of the structures that we have that we live by in our own day? Oh, we have this, this principle of a new covenant. You know, God established a new covenant with us through his son. In the old days, he established a covenant with Abraham, the Mosaic law. You guys remember all those, I think it's 600 and some odd laws that were given. The Ten Commandments. Those were one of the structures that God put in place in order to prepare his people for what they would do. Right? These are those structures that God says, you've messed up, so now let me give you a framework into which you can operate. You can now move around under, under the control and protection because this watchtower is where God is and he's overlooking the area, right? I'm, I'm going to give you this place where you can now potentially serve me through um, obedience. So he, he establishes these structures um, and, and you can argue, uh, Jesus has in mind in this parable, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let's turn there real quickly. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It's a very, very uh, similar picture here. Isaiah chapter 5. The prophet says this, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he took for it to yield, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild, wild grapes. Verse 3. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done with it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you that uh, what I will do to my vineyard, I will remove the hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled. It shall be trampled down. I will make it waste. It shall, be, it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds and they, that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And so here he's saying, again, trying to draw the picture for these, uh, for these Pharisees, these leaders, is that, hey, this vineyard is who? Who's the vineyard? It's, it's to you guys. Who's the vineyard? Israel. And he's telling these leaders, hey, you had a responsibility. I've given you all this, this hedge of protection. I've given you all these structures. I've given you the law. I've given you direction as to how you are to lead your people, Right? And the people that you're supposed to be leading are the people of Israel. This is my vineyard. You are to care for my vineyard is what he's telling them, but they failed. You know, even though God put forth these structures, they failed. Um, next point. Not only does God teach principles and, um, that we should live by and gives us teaching such as by way of precept, uh, not only does he put forth in helping us after our failure, structures and parameters that we can operate into to get back on track. But he also provides opportunities for us to be redeemed. You know, when he gives these this structure, he's effectively saying, hey, here's an opportunity for you to be in the right spot. Redeemed, this idea of being redeemed, is the idea of being bought back from destruction and placed into a position of life. That's God taking us from the throes of death and bringing us back to himself that we might have fellowship with him. And so what God does in our failure, thankfully in his grace, he gives us an opportunity to be redeemed, to be bought back, to be brought back into the family. Look back over in chapter 12 um, of Mark, verse, uh, the, the, the last part of verse 1. It says, after he dug the pit and put a wine press and built a tower. What did he do next? He leased it out to tenants, and then he went out into a far country. Um, Luke tells us that he actually, Luke has a similar, the same parable. He went off into a far country for a long time, right? Um, God gives us opportunities to be redeemed. That's a work of his grace. That's a work of his kindness. When we fail, he doesn't give up on us. Go back to our story of Adam and Eve. He didn't, he didn't just destroy them. He didn't just say to them, hey guys, you messed up. I'm going to start with some brand new people. He doesn't do that. He says, hey, I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to come on back, to do the right thing. What does he tell Cain in, in the garden? Well, when he's, you know, he's given his offering. He says, if you do well, I won't quote the whole thing because I can't remember exactly. But he says, if you, if you do the right thing, you'll be fine, he says to him. Think back to David, for example. I know there's the examples kind of used heavily. But you recall David's life, King David's life? Here's a man who was called by Samuel at a young age, 
He clearly knew God in his heart. He was considered a man after God's own heart, right? We know that David was a, was a man of God, but yet in his life, in one incident, he breaks like five commandments through one incident. I have some notes here. Let me see if I can remember it. Um, in that one incident, he coveted Uriah's wife. That's one. He committed adultery with her, right? That's two, which amounted to, uh, the notes say, it, it amounted to theft. Theft. He took a man's wife. That's three, right? He bore a false witness by lying to him, telling him, hey, go and relax at home and, and you'll be fine and, and we'll take care of things for you. And then he tells him, hey, go back out there and fight. And he sets him up to die, right? That's premeditated murder. He used deception. He murders him. It wasn't a pretty picture, right? So you would think, again, this is a, this is a horrible failure, okay? If we were looking at this guy's life, and we were evaluating the case before a judge, we would say that David, who was a man of God, he failed. But again, did God give up on it? No, he didn't. There were consequences. There were things that had to be put in place in order to make things right. But God said, hey, you messed up, but I haven't given up on you. I have a purpose for you. Think about Manasseh. You guys know Manasseh, King Hezekiah's son? He was like Hezekiah, who was a great king in Israel. He, he put forth all these reforms to remove idolatry from the land. And then toward the end of his life, he's about to die. And Isaiah talks about this. He's about to die. And God tells him, hey, get your house in order because you're about to go. And then what, is, what does Hezekiah do? He prays to the Lord. And what does God do? He gives him a few more years. I think 15 more years, right? Gives him some more years. In those 15 years, he had a son, probably one of his worst sons. His name was Manasseh. What did Manasseh do? Well, he took all these reforms that his father did, all these great, wonderful things. You can read about this in uh, 2 Chronicles 33, by the way. Um, he took all these wonderful things that his father had done, and he, he completely reversed them. Here's a, here's a man of failure at work. He's taken all these reforms, He's undoing them. He's letting the, the high places and all the idolatrous activities start back up again. He's doing all these things that are completely against God. And you would say, man, this guy, God's going to come down there and take him out because he's creating trouble for the people of God. But did God do that? If you remember the story, God doesn't take Manasseh out. He says to him, you're doing wrong. The people that you're leading are doing wrong. You're leading them to do wrong. And so he calls out to him. What did Manasseh do? Did he say, okay, God, I, you're right, I'm wrong. I'll do the right thing. No, he doesn't do that. He says, forget you and these people, forget you. And so what does God do? He destroys the land, he starts with new people, and it's all over and we're gotten, you know, everything's good. No, that's not what happens. God says, okay. I want this guy to be redeemed. And so he takes the king of Babylon, grabs Manasseh and hooks and chains, and the people, some of the people around him, takes them off to Babylon. Now they're in, in captivity, right? During that time, Manasseh repented. God brought him back to the land, and he restored the ways of God back amongst the people. So here we go. God took that horrible situation, this great failure, and he redeemed this man 
he redeemed the nation. And he did so not for Manasseh's sake, but for his own sake. And that's something to remember for our lives. When we fail, and God has given us precepts, he's put forth structures that we can live in, and, and he he's establishes these opportunities for us to be redeemed, he's doing that not for ourselves, he's doing that for himself, for his glory, right? So that we might know him and others might know him. Uh, the next point, next thing that God does when he works with us, um, not only does he give us opportunities to be redeemed, but he also, he seeks fruit from us, from the work that, that we performed as a redeemed person. Look back over in chapter 12 of Mark. It says, a man planted a vineyard, he put a fence around it, he dug a pit for it, put a wine press, built a tower, he leased it out to tenants, um, and went out into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. What's the analogy here? What's the parable? What's the principle here? God is saying, hey, you who have failed, that I have provided some principles for you to live by, and I've given you structures in which you can operate, and I've redeemed you, and I'm showing you that I want to redeem you, God is saying, hey, I expect something out of your effort. I expect to see fruit as a result of your activity. The same thing goes for us, right? We don't, we don't join a church, for example, just to be named a church member. We don't, we don't, we don't come and, and call ourselves Christians so that we can put that on our voter registration card, right? right. We, when we make a, de a determination because of the work of God working in our spirit, when we make a determination to follow Christ, that determination to do so comes as a result of God having redeemed us. We can't do it without his hand. When he has redeemed us, his desire from us is that we would do something. We don't just sit around and wait for someone to ask us to do something. We don't just sit around and look for opportunities to do things that make us feel good or that fit within our schedule or that, that kind of work for our kind of way of thinking. We ask God, what are you doing? What are you looking for from me? What are you looking for from your church? How can I get active in that activity, right? You know, here at, a church, here at our church, we have numerous opportunities for folks to, to get involved and get engaged. May we be a people who have, who have failed and who have been redeemed. May we be a people who surrender ourselves to serve him in whatever way he calls us to do it. He gathers fruit from the redeemed. The next thing we see in this passage is that he suffers long with us in order to establish grounds for either trust or rebuke. The beauty is that, again, all throughout this entire parable, we're seeing the kindness and love of God in his patience, right? Go back to verse 3 of chapter 12. Verse 3. <clears throat> Garden. God makes it, sends his servant to get fruit from these men that have leased it. Think about it. Again, these, these are sharecroppers. You guys know what a sharecropper is? A person owns some land, and then the person who owns the land has people on it that rent it, and then every once in a while, the person who owns it says, hey, 
you staying on, on my land, I expect to, in, in certain times and in certain seasons, get something from you, right? That's a part of our sharecropping uh, uh, activity. So he sends his servant to get something, and then what do they do? Verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. It's kind of messed up, to say the least. Verse 4, again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Wow, these guys are pretty, pretty rough and rugged, mean guys, right? Verse, verse 5. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. Can God trust us? Well, I mean, that's really just more of a rhetorical question. I mean, we know how much God can trust us with the things that he gives us. That's something that we should meditate upon every day. That God, asking ourselves the question, can God trust me with the stuff he's given me? Whether it's money, whether it's children, whether it's a house, whether it's whatever. Can God trust me with the stuff that he's giving, giving to me. What we see in this, these verses is a very astonishing thing on so many levels. One, it's astonishing that Jesus is so blatant and unyielding in relaying this account. Again, in the past times, when you give a parable, it's a little more, you got to work it. You got to say, well, what is he saying? How is he, you know, how, what principle is it? No, on this one, he's laying it out there so that people who listen to it can be absolutely astonished by what they just heard, Right? Um, it's astonishing on that level. It's kind of similar to what the parable that David, that Nathan gave to David from that parable, where Nathan tells David, um, this man who had a lot of sheep, and another man who was poor had one sheep, and then the man who had a lot of sheep had a visitor come, and then instead of taking one of his own sheep, he goes and takes the poor man's sheep and kills it and gives it to his, his visitor. And then David says to him, what does he say to him? David says, What? He needs to die for doing that. Remember that? It's a very astonishing statement. I mean, who would do that, right? And then, of course, Nathan says to David, you are that man, right? Um, so it's kind of a very astonishing thing. Uh, it's also astonishing within the account that these men are so evil in their treatment of these servants. That's pretty ridiculous that they would do these things. Um, it's also even more astonishing this is what I picked up, and I saw this at first, and I was like, wow. I hope somebody in these commentaries that I'm reading will see this and point, on, point, out, point it out. But it's astonishing that this owner would keep sending servants. Think about that. This is, you, know, you got this land, and then you find out from, let's just give this guy Bert. So you send Bert. This is a really funny enough, sorry. Let's go with um, Jeremy. Oh. You send Jeremy, right? And then he's like, okay, go get me some fruit, some fruit of the vine. Jeremy comes back, he's bloody, he's destroyed. I mean, what's your first response? What? I'm taking some people with me, we're going to set this straight. No, he doesn't do that. He's like, okay, um, go sit down. Alex, come on over here. I know it was messed up what happened to him. Why don't you go and get me some fruit? Okay, I got to do it. He goes, comes back. 
He's, he's beat up, hit him on the head, he's messed up. He comes back, he sits down. Jason, can you go down to that garden and get me some fruit? I don't know, boss. You gotta go. And he goes, and then another goes, and another goes. Some of them died, right? And then one of them sees a... See, it's astonishing that the master would do this, right? What does it say? What does it say? Well, Jesus wanted to be very vivid with them. He wanted them to see just how horrible they had been in their treatment of the ways of God. He wanted them to see just, hey, guys, you really have messed it up, right? Um, There are times in our own lives where God might say, speaking to us through his word and by the Holy Spirit in response to our failure, um, when, when we, you know, don't demonstrate justice and don't love people and don't care for the things of God, just like Nathan said to David, you are that man, God could say to us, hey, you are that tenant. You are those guys who beat my servants. These, in this case, they were prophets, right? You, you beat my servants. You rejected my message. You, you've constantly and iteratively done this and rejected what I've said to you, right? God has said the very same thing to us. And he's, ba- he's basically saying to us, you have failed. But you know what's awesome is that he doesn't give up. Again, it's, it's super astonishing. Read the next verse, verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those servants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Absolutely insane. Insane that they would think that it was just oh, it's idiotic that they would think that oh if we kill the heir he's just gonna give us his garden right again Jesus is drawing this picture like you guys realize just how messed up you are is what he's saying to, to these guys right um, but what we see in this is that God he sacrifices himself to demonstrate just how committed he is to seeing us do the right thing. Next slide. He sacrifices himself to demonstrate how committed he is to seeing us do what is right. Let us remind ourselves of what, you know, what Jesus has explained up to this point. He's talked about this parable. He's demonstrated through his words, his act of grace of God, all these different things that God has done to kind of help them to see. He wants to redeem them. He gives them an opportunity to take care of his garden. He says to them, hey, Give me some fruit. They don't give him fruit. They kill his servants. And then he says, okay, all right, I'm still going to give you an opportunity. Here's another chance for you. I'm going to send my own son. You've killed all my servants, but I'm going to send my son because maybe, just maybe, you'll have enough respect, enough honor, enough care to at least acknowledge him. Right? It doesn't take much to, 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 to take that leap and understand where we are in this big picture. That God would say, hey, 
I've done all these things for you. I've given you all these great opportunities. And you've still rejected. You know what? I'm going to take the next step. I'm going to send my own son. I'm going to sacrifice myself. And maybe through that, you will listen. You will hear. Here's, here's another opportunity for you who have failed to know who I am. And so he sends his son. The next point, um, as we kind of try to wrap up here, you know, all these actions that we've seen up to this point were acts of grace of God in responding to our failure, teaching us principles, giving us a kind of a framework, a structure to work within, redeeming us, giving us an opportunity to be redeemed, demonstrating his grace and, you know, working with us, giving us an opportunity to produce fruit, uh, you know, giving these servants to come and speak and, and, and say things to us, and then giving his own son. At some point, at some point, there's not much left, right? Let's keep going, just to kind of finish this up. Verse, uh, in verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Verse 10, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes, in our eyes. Hebrews 10, chapter 20, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, teaches us a principle. You've read it before, and if you haven't read it before, make a note of it and read it. But it teaches us this principle that after a certain point, when we have even trampled on the work of Christ, what sacrifice is left for us? There's nothing left. If Christ has redeemed us, and he's come to redeem us, and he's come to give us, given us an opportunity to know God and kind of break out of our failure, if we then now trample on Christ, there's nothing left for us. This is the position these guys, these tenants are in. This is the position these chief priests are in. And this is the position that some of us could be in once we've rejected the grace of God and his kindness and his, and his love and even going so far as to giving his own son. At some point, judgment falls. At some point, the gavel slams down. At some point, not to be drastic, the guillotine drops. This, this climactic image, the return of the landowner, allows us to see, for those who are pondering this event, that there will be a time when the deeds of men will be made bare in judgment, will become clear in judgment. The scriptures make that point very clear. Um, his arrival, this, this landowner's arrival, made one thing certain, that he is the rightful owner of the vineyard, right? It made certain that as the rightful owner, his return is, is this physical reminder that rebellion against God cannot be tolerated indefinitely. Now, we live in a society and in a world, we looked two weeks ago, and this, this church was bombed in Sri Lanka. I was reading an article this morning about the, these two kids. They had just finished Sunday school. They had just finished Sunday school. These kids are outside playing. This guy walks up to the church. He's got this, this thing on. They try to keep him out. They tell him, no, you can't come in. He's got a baseball cap on. He's wearing this colorful shirt, and he's got this big bag, and he wants to get into the church. 
He wants to get in there to hurt people. And these people at the door said, no, you're not coming in here. And so he detonates the bomb at the door. Those kids were out there playing. These kids died. You look at that kind of stuff and you say, what is going on, right? Can this continue on? Can this continue? Can, can we keep doing this in our world? God says at some point, the hammer drops. It'll only go for so long, and then he, he returns. The last uh, point here, to kind of close this out, is uh, in that he does judge sin and doesn't tolerate too long, he provides security for those who stand with him. He provides security for those who stand with him. Verse, uh, verse 12, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he, has, he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Uh, for those who have been hurt by the failures of others, it is sometimes difficult to find peace due to various emotional scars that we experience. Uh, think about these people that, that these chief priests had hurt, the, the, the either racially, ethnically, um, financially. You know, they, they had people in like categories and they would treat them horribly. The, the widows were not taken care of. The, the orphans weren't taken care of. They were just treating people bad, right? Um, we see in this example that even though these men thought they had won and were looking to win, you, you see this image of Jesus standing with these folks that had been hurt by these horrible failed men in order to remind them that he cares for them, that he stands with them. Um, earlier during the communion, I asked a question. I said, well, well I said earlier that uh, when we take communion, we do so as an act of remembering the work of Christ and aligning ourselves with the great commission, the great call that God put on us. Um, I also said that if you have not accepted Christ, then we ask you to refrain. Uh, today, if you are a person in this room that has never accepted Christ, that, that you, you see, that you know you failed, you know you, your life is, and all of us are in that state, we fail, we do things that are incorrect or wrong by God. The beauty in this passage and the beauty of Scripture, the beauty of the gospel, is that God does not want to leave us in that state. Look at what this, this master did. He went so far as to giving his own son. So I'll say to you today, if you have never come to trust Christ as your Savior, if you've never said to God, I want to align myself with your will, today is a time to do that. Well, I'll be over in the room over there after service, but we ask that you make a decision, make a choice. If you haven't done it before, commit yourself to Christ if you have not done that. Because at some point, at some point, time does run out. This is not to totally just make, make you afraid or anything. It's just the truth. At some point, time runs out. Some of us may leave here today and not see tomorrow, right? And then judgment will fall. So hopefully, uh, if you haven't done so, please do that today. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, this day belongs to you. This, this is your word, God, and we worship you in spirit and in truth. May you be honored by our thoughts. May we leave here now trusting in your power to save. In Christ's name, amen.